We are Sugar by Half, a not-for-profit, independent organization led by a team of health experts and business professionals who also happen to be concerned parents. We are passionate about a future for Australia where people live healthier lives through the reduction of sugar-related diseases. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to Sugar by Half. My name is Daniel Bellato, and today we are honoured to be in the company of Dr. Peter Bruckner. Peter is a world-renowned Australian sports medicine clinician and researcher. Until recently, the team doctor for the Australian cricket team, he has held similar positions at Liverpool Football Club, Melbourne and Collingwood AFL clubs, the Socceroos, and with the national Olympic teams. A professor of sports medicine at La Trobe University, Peter is also the author of several books and the founder of the Sugar by Half public health campaign. He lectures on health all over the world and often appears in the media, including Fox, Footy TV, SEN Radio, ABC Radio and The Age. Today, Peter will be discussing his latest book, A Fat Lot of Good. Welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us to speak about how the experts got food and diet so wrong and what we can do to take back control of our health. Thanks, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. So, Peter, are you able to start by sharing your health journey and how you came to write in the brilliant book, A Fat Lot of Good? Right. Well, as you mentioned, uh, I've basically been a sports medicine physician for 40 years now and uh, work with uh, lots of different uh, athletes, uh, great and small. Um, and I always had a bit of an interest in nutrition. In fact, I co-authored the first Australian book of sports nutrition, Food for Sport, way back in the 1980s. But to be honest, I sort of lost interest really in nutrition because it's all just about, you know, carbs, carbs and carbs and Gatorade and Powerade. And, you know, that was it as far as sports nutrition went. Um, so it's really my own personal uh, experience that uh, that led me to, to where we are now. So about uh, where were we now, eight, uh, eight years ago, uh, I was in living in Liverpool, uh, working at the football club there in England. And, you know, if you'd asked me then, uh, you know, how was I or you know, how's my health? I'd have said, yeah, no, good. You know, I was, um, you know, I just turned 60. Uh, I'd uh, been on a you know, standard low fat, healthy, supposedly healthy diet for all my life. Uh, exercised regularly. My blood sugars were fine. You know, I was to all intents and purposes quite healthy. The reality was that I probably wasn't quite as healthy as I thought I was. Uh, for a start, I had a family history of type 2 diabetes. So my dad had developed type 2 diabetes at exactly the age I was then. And I'd seen what happened to him, and I was pretty keen not to go down that track. It's not a very nice uh, disease. I was significantly overweight, probably borderline obese. And like many uh, middle-aged men, and, and I consider 60 middle-aged, I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Um, like many middle-aged men, I'd, I'd probably put on, I don't know, half a kilogram a year for 30 years, to the point where I was you know, significantly overweight, and my kids are starting to poke me in the guts and say, you know, come on, Dad. And, and I'd shrug my shoulders and say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I'm, I'm on a low-fat diet. I exercise. You know, it's not my fault. And as well, uh, I had, you know, some bad-looking blood tests. You know, my insulin was high. My triglycerides were high. And I had a condition called fatty liver that I'd had for about 10 years. And like a typical doctor, I totally ignored it. I didn't really know what a fatty liver was. And I figured I was on a low-fat diet, so I'd be fine. So in retrospect, I was clearly uh, what we would regard as pre-diabetic. And I have no doubt that if I'd continued on the way I was, by now I'd be a fully-fledged type 2 diabetic. But around about that time, I heard, uh, I heard a few whispers around the traps that uh, there were some people out there challenging the, the dogma that, uh, that fat is a problem and suggesting maybe carbohydrates are the problem. And in particular, Tim Noakes, who was an old friend of mine. Tim and I go back a long way. We've been on the sort of speaker circuit in sports medicine and sports science circles for many, many years. And we always get together as a South African and Australia and talk cricket and talk rugby and uh, so on. So, and Tim's a smart guy, arguably the smartest guy that I've, I've ever met, to be honest. And he, he's proven a lot of theories wrong over his, over his time. And, um, and so he came out and sort of started talking about, uh, you know, carbs being the problem and this low carb diet being the solution. And at first I thought, oh, he's, you know, he's lost the plot finally, Tim, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, he won't be right this time. And then I started reading a bit and, and the more I read, the more I thought, wow, you know, this is really interesting. I read a book by Gary Taubes called Good Calories, Bad Calories, and this book just blew me away. 
I just couldn't believe what I was reading. And uh, not only just the fact that you were suggesting that, uh, you know, carbs were the problem, not fats, but you talked about the politics of how the sort of the low fat movement had won out over the low carb movement way back in the sort of 60s and 70s, which I always assumed had a lot to do with science, but turns out had nothing to do with science and everything to do with money and power and the US agriculture department, I think. So, so I thought, wow, you know, the more I read, the more I thought, this is really interesting. I've got to look into this. And so I thought, well, I'm a scientist, you know, I should do some research. Now, as a scientist, I also know that research with an N equals one is a waste of time, except when the one is you, in which case it was very valuable. So I decided it was time for an N equals one experiment. Experiment. So I decided I'd do all my bloods on day one, and then I would do three months of a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. And uh, what did I mean by that? Well, I stopped eating uh, sugars, uh, starches, so potatoes, pasta, rice, um, all those sort of uh, things. I stopped eating, largely stopped eating processed foods, went back to eating real food um, and, uh, yeah, starchy vegetables and, and stopped all that. And, and the only fruit I had was berries. So instead of that, I, I went back to eating probably the way that my you know, grandparents had eaten, sort of meat and fish and uh, non-starchy veg, um, full-fat cream and milk, eggs, you know, demonized for years. I went back to that. Mm. And uh, as I said, the only fruit I had was was berries and some some nuts and cheese and things. So so what happened? I did, I did that for three months. Now, the first thing that happened was um, I lost my appetite. So I stopped being hungry the whole time. So instead of having my cereal for breakfast at 8 o'clock and then getting to about 10.30 and thinking, oh, God, it must be lunchtime soon. You know, I just would eat my eggs and bacon uh, and avocado for breakfast and wouldn't be hungry all day. So I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to eating probably two meals a day, which is what I still do now. If I ever got hungry, I'd just have a handful of nuts or something like that. It was fine. And then the, then I started to lose weight. So the first week, you know, you lose a bit of weight. You think, oh, yeah, it's, you know, just a bit of fluid or beginner's luck or something. And every week I just kept losing weight more and more. The more fat I ate, the more fat I lost. It was just weird. That was the hardest thing, getting your head around the fact that it was okay to eat fat. You didn't have to trim your meat and you could have fatty meats and you could have full fat dairy and, and eggs and things. It was, you know, we've been brainwashed for years that they were all bad and it was very hard to just sort of get my head around the fact that it was okay. And then I started to feel other things. I started to uh, to feel more alert during the day. I didn't sort of have that post-lunch sort of, you know, sleepiness. I slept better at night. In fact, I stopped snoring. You know, I'd, uh, you know, snored. Yeah, well, my wife tells me I'd snort a lot. But anyway, she's a happy wife, happy life. She was very happy about that. Um, my sleep was better. I had more energy. My exercise tolerance increased. And I just felt mentally more alert. Anyway, I got to the end of that 13 weeks, and I lost 13 kilograms. I hadn't been hungry once. I'd eaten really nice food, and I lost 13 kilograms. I sort of thought, it's supposed to be much harder than this. You know, everyone says it's really hard to lose weight. I felt, I almost felt guilty, but it was just so easy. It just poured off me. But eventually, everyone kept telling me, oh, you're looking too thin in the face. Stop, you know, stop doing it. So I backed off a little bit and maintained my weight. But it was pretty amazing. So in that 13 weeks, I, I'd lost 13 kilograms. All my blood tests returned to normal. I tried triglycerides, my insulin, my fatty liver that I had for 10 years disappeared in that three months. My liver function test went back to perfectly normal. It was just incredible. And, and uh, it just blew me away. I just couldn't believe the effect that three months of this diet had on me. And uh, the only negative was I needed a new wardrobe because uh, all, my, all my trousers were way too big for me and so on. But anyway, I figured that was a small price to pay. So that was my own experience. And, and I guess, you know, when you have an experience like that, you, you've got two choices. You either say, great, I'm okay, mate, and uh, leave it at that. Or you sort of feel a bit duty bound to sort of tell people about it. You know, you think, well, if you, not that I discovered it, but I discovered it for myself. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I need to tell people about this and tell them as many people as possible. So I, uh, I you know, sort of went public and, and started talking about it and giving talks and uh, giving lectures and, and things. And, uh, um, yeah, one thing led to another and, and here I am. And so we started uh, Sugar by Half uh, a few years ago, which was a campaign basically just obviously to reduce added sugar. And I figured, like, it wasn't the only issue, but it's probably the most important issue. So we thought a nice simple campaign to reduce sugar would be good and I always think any campaign should have a have a target. So we thought, well, half the average Australian has about 14 or 15 teaspoons of added sugar a day. World Health Organization suggests no more than six. 
Well, my maths was, you know, you're a teacher, Daniel, now better than me. My maths was never that great. But, yeah, that was close enough for me. So that's been going for a while now. We've got, we've got lots of programs out there. And then a couple of years ago, uh, Penguin, the big publishers, came to me and said, uh, we'd like you to write a book. And, uh, and to be honest, my, my initial response to them was, look, the last thing the world needs is another diet book. I mean, there's, there's literally hundreds of them uh, in any bookstore you go into. But um, I guess they convinced me that there were very few by doctors. I'm only by celebrities and uh, very few by Australian doctors. And uh, I thought, well, I guess this is a way of getting my message across rather than talking to 50 or 100 people at a, at a lecture. Uh, it's a chance to get to, uh, to more people. So, so I just uh, sat down and I wrote the book in three weeks. Uh, I just went down to a little uh, beach shack we've got and uh, just locked myself away in the middle of winter, no one else around, and just wrote for three weeks and, uh, and wrote the book. Um, obviously, I'd you know, thought about it a lot and I'd, uh, I knew what I wanted to write and I had all the all the articles and all the research papers there and everything. But, uh, yeah, just the way I went. And and that, uh, yeah, it came out. It's called The Fat Lot of Good. That was the hardest thing, working out the uh, the title. And yet, in the end, you know, it was the obvious title. But, you know, these things are never obvious until you, uh, you see them. And, um, it's yeah, it's done really well. It's sold really well and uh, it continues to, to sell well. And, uh, yeah, so that's a very long, uh, long story. But that's, uh, yeah, that's me. Thank you very much for sharing. So some fascinating things there. Firstly, with the book, um, for those who haven't had a chance to read it, definitely pick, pick up a copy. It's really well written. Yeah, and that is, yeah. There we go. Well, and very nice to understand as well. So I think you've done a good job. Uh, I don't make any money. I don't make, I should point out, I'm not trying to flog a book uh, to make money. I don't make any money out of it. All the proceeds go to Sugar by Half. So uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not on here to flog a book. Absolutely. But it is yeah, really well written and very easy for us to understand. So thank you for your work on that. And as you mentioned, you know, new wardrobe, pretty good problem to have, I think. And if Tim don't speak, so definitely we'll be listening uh, to what he says. You quote, we are getting fatter and sicker. You mentioned the six modern epidemics being obesity, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, tooth decay, cardiovascular disease, and other chronic diseases. Some statistics you refer to are... Life expectancy will start to decline and several experts are suggesting that this generation will be the first to have a shorter life expectancy than the previous generation. Every day in Australia, 280 people develop diabetes, which is one person every five minutes. And the World Health Organization predicted that by 2020, two thirds of all disease worldwide will be the result of lifestyle choices. Can you talk to these modern epidemics and the current state of the nation's health? Well, obviously, the word epidemic or pandemic's been uh, been pretty big this year, and uh, and uh, I'm not uh, downplaying the uh, the current pandemic at all. But um, really, in a way, it pales in comparison to to the other epidemics. Uh, obesity, for instance, um, you know, we the the uh, amount of overweight and, and uh, obese people. I mean, seven out of ten Australian males are overweight or obese five out of 10 females, and more than a quarter of our kids, a quarter of our kids are overweight or obese. And Australia is right up there in the uh, in the top uh, half a dozen nations in the world in the obesity uh, tally. You know, when the Olympics come around, we, we're big on the medal tally. Well, you know, we all like to be in the top six. Well, we're in the top six of the obesity uh, tally, and that's uh, that's not a good uh, not a good top six to, to be in. And uh, just, to, you know, when you think about it, I mean, Australia is, you know, we're a wealthy country. We're, we've got a great climate. We've uh, got uh, lots of, you know, food that we grow ourselves. Or, uh, and, uh, and yet, you know, we're well-educated, and yet we're one of the fattest countries in the world. You know, how can that be? Mm. So, you know, it's just wrong. It just shouldn't be. And, and I, you know, and I, well, I'll come to the reasons why a bit later. Then diabetes. Um, yeah, nearly 2 million people in Australia with type 2 diabetes. I mean, when I was in medical school, they used to call it mature onset diabetes because old people got it. But now they have to change the name because younger people are getting it all the time. And diabetes doesn't sort of kill you by itself, if, if, but it's the complications of diabetes, the eye, the kidney, the heart, the, uh, the vascular problems. It's the most common cause of amputations, the most common cause of, of kidney transplants, the most common cause of blindness. 
So these are the things that, that you know, and diabetes is a horrible disease. I saw my father go through it and uh, really I wouldn't wish it on my worst uh, enemy. And yet, you know, we get stressed out by a, by a pandemic that, that's going to cause, you know, a few hundred deaths. And here we are, there's probably, uh, you know, uh, one and a half million people in the world, you know, that uh, die every year. Uh, every year and you know there's nearly 500 million people with diabetes in the world you know and yet we just ignore it you know it's just uh anyway that's uh that's diabetes um we talked also about fatty liver i, I talked about my fatty liver i mean it's a disease that people don't know much about but uh, a third of all australians have fatty liver and uh it's it's a basically a pre-diabetes so it's an indicator that your uh, body is not coping with the carbohydrates and it's laying down fat in your liver and that's going to develop most times into diabetes. So that's an issue. Uh, teeth, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when uh, when they fluoridated the the water supply in all the major cities in Australia. And I remember distinctly remember them saying, you know, there'll be no more cavities, no more fillings. And I was a kid. I thought, oh, great, you know, I had to go to the dentist and getting fillings and so on. So I thought, oh, this is great. And yet, no. Nah. Sugar beets fluoride anytime, and uh, there's still more than 50% of Australian kids have tooth decay, and uh, it's the most common cause for kids to be admitted to hospital with teeth problems. So we're not winning that one. Then we got uh, cardiovascular disease, still the biggest killer in this country. Um, 4.2 million Australians have cardiovascular disease, largely preventable. Um, and then there's all these other chronic diseases like, you know, Alzheimer's and gluten uh, deficiency and things like that, gluten intolerance. You know, they didn't exist when I was in medical school. And, you know, they've developed over these last couple of decades. And, uh, and the main reason is diet. So, you know, we've got a lot of health issues. But interestingly, every one of those issues can largely be, go back to diet and, and the wrong dietary advice that we were given and the problem that we've all been eating the wrong things. for. Uh, 40, 50 years now. Like he mentioned there, just about the amputations and blindness. Like we did have um, the 2020 Australian of the Year, James Mukey on, and he mentioned about, you know, the significance of diabetes and the link to blindness and amputations and how serious it is. So you just outlined there many issues regarding that. Do you have any practical ways we could tackle these problems? Well, you can stop eating sugar. That's a good start. <laughs> Yeah, look, it's not easy. I mean, uh, you know, I think we've, we've got to change our whole mindset. We've got to accept that it's not fats uh, that are problems. It, it's it's carbohydrates. So when we talk about carbohydrates, we're talking about there are two different types of carbohydrates. There's sugars and starches. So sugars are, you know, glucose and fructose and with a combination of glucose and fructose, which is sucrose, which is table sugar. Um, and, and they're contained in uh, in soft drinks and fruit juices and, and things like that. So so that's a major issue. So sugars are, are very important and they're everywhere. You know, sugars are, I mean, obviously drinks are the obvious thing. And, and we obviously, we, we pick on, you know, Coca-Cola or something like that, which has 16 teaspoons of sugar in a standard 600 mil bottle. 16 teaspoons of sugar. Now you would never let your kid eat, eat 16 packets of sugar. And yet we have 16 teaspoons of sugar in Coca-Cola. I don't want to just pick on Coke, but I mean, the whole range. And again, it's not just not soft drinks, it's fruit juices. Now, I grew up and, and we all did, you know, being told fruit ju fruit juices were good for you. There's as much fruit, there's as much sugar in a, in a bottle of uh, orange juice as there is in Coca-Cola. They basically take all the goodness out of the fruit and just leave you the sugar in the water. Um, mm. Flavoured milks, you know, it's full of sugar. Um, you know, so many uh, sports drinks, you know, Gatorade, Powerade, you know, basically sugar and water with few electrolytes. So sugar is everywhere and uh, we've got to cut back. Here we have teenagers having 30, 40 teaspoons of sugar a day. So it's not hard to, to find. So so drinks are a really important thing. Uh, water and milk, best drinks for kids, best drinks for anyone, really. Um, just get get them used to drinking water and milk. And that's full fat milk, not uh, stupid skim milk that uh, actually makes you fatter than, uh, than full fat milk. It's bizarre. There was never any evidence for that in the first place, but Anyway, that's another story. Um, so drinks are really important. And then the other thing is processed foods. I mean, 70 to 80% of processed foods have added sugar. So the food industry has sort of got, got us to, be, to become sweet being normal. So they just increase the amount of sugar in, the, in every food that they're preparing until you get to this bliss point that's uh, your ideal amount of sugar. So 
pretty much every uh, every bit of processed food has added sugar. Um, so if we're going to avoid sugars and processed foods, and then starches, so things like potato, rice, uh, pasta, and so on. I mean, we've always been told, oh, you know, avoid sugars, but but those sort of carbohydrates are fine. Well, they're not. They're basically sugar. I mean, a starch is just a series of glucose molecules stuck together. When you ingest them, the body breaks them down to glucose. So when they're absorbed into the bloodstream, it's exactly the same as the glucose from Coca-Cola. Your body does, doesn't sort of sit there and say, oh, that's a glucose from Coca-Cola. That's bad. But that's one from potato. That's all right. I mean, it's all just glucose. The only difference is that they're absorbed a bit more slowly uh, or they take a bit more time to break down. Uh, so your sugar rushes not quite as quick with a, with a starch rather than a sugar, but it's the same amount of, uh, of sugar. So, you know, I th and there are still, you know, people out there, dietitians and doctors who advise people with diabetes. So diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. You don't tolerate carbohydrates. And what are they doing? They're advising them to have lots of carbohydrates and just take more medications, more insulin and more drugs to compensate. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, it's like telling an al alcoholic to drink alcohol, you know, I mean, and just... I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. So the simple way, if you've got diabetes or pre-diabetes or even you just want to be metabolically healthy, is to pretty much eliminate sugars and significantly reduce the amount of carbohydrates. And if you do that, you're going to be a whole lot better off. As a general rule, avoid processed food, replace that with real food, fresh foods, avoid the middle aisles of the supermarket, just go to the outside, all the good stuff's on the outside, the meat and fish and dairy and fruit and veg, stick to that. You know, you can get your loo paper in the middle, but that's about all. So uh, if there's any left. But, um, yeah, so that would be my, you know, sort of, if I had to say it in one word, JERF, J-E-R-F, just eat real food. You know, you're a lot better off. Perfect. Thanks for that outline, Peter. You have adopted a low-carb, healthy-fat lifestyle. Can you give us an overview of how we got nutrition so wrong and the reason we were told to eat a high-carbohydrate diet? Oh boy, that's a long story. And uh, if anyone's interested in reading about it, uh, there's a fantastic book by Nina Teicholz called Big Fat Surprise that I would recommend to anyone. It just blow you away. It, uh, it's incredible. But to summarize that, uh, so back in the sort of 50s and 60s, there were two schools of thought. There was the, uh, on one side of the Atlantic in the UK, there was uh, John Yudkin, who was a professor of, uh, of nutrition and biochemistry who said that sugar was the problem. On the other side of the Atlantic in the States, there was a guy called Ansel Keys, who was a very famous physiologist who became very famous in the Second World War. And he was um, suggesting that fat was the problem. And he based uh, a lot of what he said on a study he did that uh, he published as the Six Country Study. And he looked at the relationship between heart disease and the amount of fat in their diet. And he came up with a straight line that showed the more fat you had, the more likely you would have a heart attack. So that was the basis of uh, what he was saying. And he had a had a lot of support behind him, uh, especially from the US agriculture industry. And uh, so he won out. Keys won out over the end. The low-fat movement won out over the end. And uh, poor old John Yadkin uh, died, a, died a shattered man. Um, he, wrote, uh, he wrote a great book, um, and it's still available. So uh, it's worth, worth looking at. He was way ahead of his time. And as a result, I mean, I always assumed that it was based, you know, that the low fat decision to sort of recommend low fat was based on good science. It turns out that Key's six, six country study was actually a 22 country study. Uh, and when you added the 22 countries in, there was no straight line at all. There was no relationship between fat and, and heart disease. But he plucked out the six countries that showed a nice straight line, you know, up, up it went. Um, and, uh, and basically it was a fraud. And uh, so... The whole of Western society has basically been put on to a low-fat diet on the basis of a fraud. It's, it's hard to believe, I know, but it's true. And enormous influence of since then of the sugar industry and of the uh, of US agriculture industry that have prevented anyone finding out the truth because they're making a lot of money out of all of this. And uh, some very brave journalists and, and researchers and, and studies that, that showed that it was completely wrong got buried.
they weren't published. Someone found that you know, two studies, one called the Sydney Heart Study and one called the Minnesota Diet Study, both showed that uh, that saturated fats and animal fats were uh, were much healthier healthier than uh, than vegetable oils and polyunsaturated fats. And both they didn't publish the results until someone twenty years later went back and found the results and published them because. Uh, now, one of the one of those studies cost seven hundred million dollars, and uh, and they didn't publish their results. So um, there's been a lot of very dodgy stuff going on for the last uh, you know fifty or so years, and we've all suffered. I mean, this experiment that we've all been on for fifty years, you've got to say, has been a disaster, because all we've done is got fatter and sicker over the last fifty years. It's actually criminal, uh, absolutely criminal that this has happened, but it's very hard to unwind it. Because obviously there's so many people who are doing very well out of this, particularly the food industry. Yeah, I found it absolutely fascinating read um, on your review in the book around that whole Ansel Keys study and, and what was happening behind the scenes. So definitely it's worth hard to believe. In, yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, a favorite quote of mine is, you've got to eat fat to lose fat. And you sort of touched on this before, but can you explain what is not as simple as calories in versus calories out? Yeah, we're always told that uh, you know weight and, and health is simply a matter of uh, expending more calories than you take in. Um, and you know, certainly calories are important. I'm not saying that they're not. But if you believe that you know every calorie, a calorie is a calorie, and, and that's all that matters, you, you've, you'd have to believe then that like uh, 800 calories from a, uh, a nice piece of uh, baked salmon does the same things to your body as 800 calories of, of sugar, chocolate. Um, and clearly that's not the case. So there's got to be something else. And it's all about what your body, how your body metabolizes those calories and in what format those calories are. So it's the calorie, calories are not all the same and it's not a simple matter of, uh, because if it was, we wouldn't have a problem with obesity because everyone's tried a low calorie diet. Everyone who's been overweight tries a low calorie diet. They lose a bit of weight, but they soon put it back on because uh, it's not sustainable. It's very, very hard. Have you ever tried to eat 800 calories a day, or 1,200 calories a day? You are miserable. You get hangry, hungry and angry. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. You are constantly hungry. And it's just so difficult to do. Even the strongest willed, willed people can only manage it for a few weeks. And then what happens then is that when you go on these low-calorie diets, your body metabolism slows down to compensate because the body protects itself. And then when you break the diet, you actually finish up getting fatter than you were because your metabolism is slowed. So you're worse off than when you started. And it's, it's this yo-yo dieting that so many people have been on in the last 20 or 30 years. So that's uh, that's why you've uh, you know we're in the in the mess that we're we're in. So if you if you avoid calories, if you avoid carbohydrates, you've got to replace them with something. Um, and uh, we replace them with uh, with lots of healthy protein and lots of healthy fats. And what are healthy fats? Well, they're probably the things that have been deemed as unhealthy. So animal fats are all uh, are all healthy, um, and it's the uh, and as with monounsaturated fats, you know your olive oil, and your avocados, and, and and nuts and so on. And what we shouldn't have too much of is vegetable oils. One of the biggest mistakes we've made in health in the last century is to replace natural foods like butter and lard and beef tallow, which is what we our parents and grandparents used to cook with, and replace them with these cheap, ultra-processed vegetable oils. But they call them vegetable oils. They're actually seed oils, but um, which when they're oxidized, they give off all these nasty uh, toxic substances and are very detrimental to your health. But um, they were initially developed as cleaning agents, believe it or not. And then someone discovered that when you heat them, they, they act a little bit like lard. And, uh, and we were con got convinced that they are actually healthier than saturated fat, and that's absolutely not the case. So, that's uh, so so far we've got public enemy number one, which is sugar and uh, processed carbohydrates, and public enemy number two, which are these vegetable oils. So stop cooking in these vegetable oils and go back to cooking in butter, lard, olive oil if you want to use uh, an oil, but not uh, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, etc., corn oil, etc. They uh, they are not good for you when you especially when they're heated and they get oxidized and uh, give off aldehydes and, and all trans fats and, and so on so yeah there's uh there's a lot that we've done wrong um but the good news is that a lot of this is reversible 
Um, you know, they've people are showing now that even type two diabetes can be reversed. You know, it's some really exciting stuff coming out from both the both England and, and the and the US, showing studies that uh, with a low carb diet, you can actually put your diabetes into remission, which is you know amazing. In the book, you demonstrate that calories, salt, and cholesterol are not as critical as we have been led to believe. You talk about three critical real causes that are really important to understand for a journey towards better health. Are you able to talk about the impact of insulin resistance, inflammation, and the gut microbiome? Yeah, look, they're, they're complex issues. And um, insulin resistance basically occurs when you, um, when you consume a, a sugar or something with glucose. Um, when it hits your, uh, your blood, it causes the pancreas, a little gland in your stomach, to release a hormone called insulin. And insulin then drives that glucose into the liver and into the, into the muscles uh, where it's used as a fuel. If you have too much sugar, insulin then stores it as fat. Um, over a period of time when, you have, when you're producing lots and lots of insulin, your body becomes what we call resistant to insulin. And it needs more and more insulin to drive the uh, the glucose into, into the tissues. And that's what we call when you become insulin resistant. Now, the problem with insulin is, is that it's a fat storage hormone. So it stores fat and it prevents the breakdown of fat. So that's not a good combination. So that's why insulin resistance is the basis of a lot of these problems, this prediabetes and metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes. And uh, the only solution to that is if you avoid carbohydrates, sugars and carbohydrates, then you reduce the dependence on, uh, on insulin. Inflammation is a really interesting, uh, interesting topic. I mean, you're all sort of familiar with inflammation. You have an inflamed joint or an inflamed toe or something like that. It's red and hot and, and, uh, uh, and painful. So we're not, not really talking about that sort of inflammation. We're talking about a chronic low-grade inflammation. And the medical fraternity now believe that a lot of chronic disease is due to this chronic low-grade inflammation, even atherosclerosis, uh, all sorts of diseases are due to, uh, to this. And we know that uh, there are a number of factors that cause or that promote inflammation. And uh, that can be, uh, be stress, it can be lack of exercise, smoking, alcohol, all these sort of things. But as far as diet goes, there are dietary factors that increase the amount of inflammation in your body and so uh probably the two main ones you might be surprised to hear are sugars carbohydrates and and vegetable oils uh, the polyunsaturated omega-6 oils and these are the two main promoters of inflammation so if you have that in your in your system all the time it's promoting this chronic inflammation this chronic low-grade inflammation i can tell you a story about uh one of the aussie cricketers who had had this uh, chronic inflammation in his knee and uh, got to the point where he had to stop playing completely. And he'd seen all sorts of specialists and had scans and, and arthroscopies and so on. No one could work out what was going on. And eventually a rheumatologist decided he had, uh, had a uh, what we call a seronegative arthritis, which is like rheumatoid arthritis, but not rheumatoid, but it's an inflammatory arthritis of his knee. Put him on some pretty powerful drugs. They weren't really... Uh, doing the job, so I put him on some, some more, even more powerful drugs that uh, cost about $15,000 a year to the taxpayer. Um, and that was sort of controlled his, uh, his knee to a certain extent. So he was able to play. He wasn't able to fully train, but he was at least able to get back into playing. And I was, uh, we were on tour in India, and um, he'd uh, noticed how much weight I'd lost. And he said, look, I need to lose a, you know, a few kilos is a bit overweight. It's amazing how many elite sports people are a few kilos overweight. Incredible. Anyway, that's another story. Um, but uh, he said, I want to lose some weight. And, uh, and so he was good to put him on a low-carb diet. It's not the easiest thing to do in India when you can't have rice and naan and those sort of things. But he was very disciplined. The other good thing about athletes is they're very disciplined. Um, and uh, he, uh, he went on the diet. So uh, three weeks, uh, he used to inject himself with this drug, this expensive drug, every fortnight. And at about day 10 of the fortnight, he'd start to get an ache in his knee and he'd know, oh, it's time for my injection. 
Anyway, he came up to me three weeks into his diet and said, Doc, I forgot to take my injection last week. What should I do? I said, what do you mean you forgot to take it? He said, well, I normally get uh, an ache in my knee and I haven't had any pain in my knee. Um, you know, do you think I should take the injection? I said, well, why don't you just wait and see? I pretended, you know, oh, yeah, I expected that, you know, but uh, I pretended <laughs> that, uh, I pretended that, uh, you know, um, I expected it. But no, I, I said, you know, why, why don't you wait and see? Anyway, to cut a long story short, his chronic knee inflammation completely disappeared when he went on a low-carb diet. We avoided sugar and processed uh, processed foods. And so instead of this $15,000 a year drug, he'd solved his problem with diet. And within 12 months, he was in the top 10 batsmen in the world. And, uh, you know, amazing story. And there's so many stories like that about arthritis, about all sorts of uh, inflammatory disease that can be uh, managed on a low-carb diet. So that's inflammation, really important. And we know that certain foods um, promote inflammation and other foods actually reduce inflammation. Uh, the omega-3, so fish and fish oil and uh, and uh, flaxseed and things like that have been shown to reduce inflammation. Um, so that's inflammation. And the third is the gut microbiome. Well, we hear a lot about the gut microbiome. And, uh, and basically, it's the same principles. I mean, uh, if you um, stop abusing the gut with, uh, with all these uh, sugars and, and, and carbohydrates, then, uh, then the quality of your microbiome, which is the bacteria that line your gut, uh, improves. And as a result, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, theories about and evidence now about the relationship between the gut and the brain and so on. And it's amazing how so many people, when you put them on a low-carb diet, will tell you that they, they lose their brain fog. It's quite interesting. Um, and it's not that recognized in the medical profession, but brain fog is a really common problem. And uh, almost a significant number of people that go onto this diet will come and volunteer the fact that, you know, my head just seems so much clearer. I've lost this brain fog. They, they probably didn't even realize they had half the time. And, and, and it has an effect on, uh, on other uh, diseases. I mean, we've known for years that epilepsy can be managed by a low-carb diet, but I've had patients now with, uh, with Parkinson's disease that uh, completely disappeared, um, that uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, bipolar disease. I was standing in the coffee queue at university uh, a while ago, and a girl came up to me and said, Dr. Brooklyn, I said, yeah. He said, she said, oh, I enjoyed your lecture there. I said, oh, that's good. And she said, oh, but that's not what I want to talk to you about. Oh God! You know what have I done now? You know, <laughs> who am I upset now? And um, she said, "My husband and I are massive cricket fans, and uh, a few years ago, because of you, we uh, we went on a low carb diet." I said, "Oh, great!" He said, "Yeah, no, my husband's been bipolar all his adult life, and he's now off all his medication, and it's completely changed our lives." And I just want to say thank you. I thought, "Whoa, Jesus!" You know, no one ever thanked me for their fixing their ankle or anything like that. So, you know, those sort of things really have a, you know, are, are powerful. And, um, you know, I, I can relate lots of stories like that. So in every one of them, it just amazes me that, you know, there's such an impact of diet on health that uh, unfortunately the medical profession, I mean, it's, don't you, I don't blame the doctors in any way. I mean, that's what we're taught. And, and, you know, doctors stay in their comfort zone and our comfort zone is drugs and surgery. You know, that, they're the two weapons that we have to fix things. And that's all we're talked about, you know, we're, all, we, uh, all we taught in medical school. I didn't have a single lecture on nutrition or exercise in my, in my medical school. Well, maybe I skipped that day, but I don't think so. But, you know, nowadays it hasn't improved that much. It hasn't changed that much. It's all about drugs and surgery. And they're, they're the only weapons that, that we know about. So you stay in your comfort zone. So as a doctor... You stay in your comfort zone. If you don't know anything about nutrition, you can't talk about nutrition. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it needs a whole sort of paradigm shift and, and a whole shift away from treating illness to preventing illness. And everyone talks about preventing illness, but no one actually does anything about it. That was a very long answer to a short question, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. A few very powerful things there, you know, just the power of nutrition that's healed a few people and, you know, no longer taking medication and expensive drugs. Um, if you just... if you told me that, you know, 10 years ago, I'd have laughed at you. And, and most doctors will laugh at you. And so that, that's nonsense. That can't happen. And, and to be honest, I was exactly the same. And if I hadn't seen these things with my own eyes, I, I probably wouldn't believe them either. But uh, it's very powerful, as you say. 
Yeah, I think just the other interesting thing that I've found um, when I've read the book as well, and as you just mentioned there about, you know, doctors hardly having any nutrition training yeah, in the university degrees. It's yeah. unbelievable, yet so many people go to them for advice and just receive printouts. Yeah, of, yeah, just follow the dietary you know, guidelines. And, and the problem is the dietary guidelines are wrong, you know, yeah. so that's, that's a major issue and we've got to change that. But again, you know, there's a lot of dietitians and, and doctors out there and obviously the food industry is always uh, always in there. But they don't want things to change. They're doing very well, thank you very much. Mm. You know, so uh, we don't want things to change. The three macronutrients are protein, fat, and carbohydrates. How much of each do we actually require for everyday general health? Well, if you don't eat fats, you die. If you don't eat protein, you die. If you don't eat carbohydrates, you're fine. But that tells you something, doesn't it? So you've got two essential macronutrients and one optional. And yet we're led to believe that you've got to have carbohydrates. Your brain needs, you know, can't exist without carbohydrates. Brain needs glucose. Even if you had zero carbohydrates, which the, the carnivores, uh, you know, tend to be pretty much zero carbohydrates. I don't see any of them, their brain falling, uh, falling off or anything like that. I mean, the body makes enough mm -hmm. glucose out of uh, proteins and fats if it needs to. Um, but, you know, most people... Uh, on low carb, they're not on zero carbs. So how many carbs do people need? That's an interesting question. The average Australian probably has two to 300 grams of carbs a day. Uh, what we define as low carb is uh, under 130, under 100, something like that, low carb. And then extremely low carb is what we call keto or ketogenic diet. or uh, um, And that's probably under 30 to to 50 grams per day. And, and what we mean by the ketogenic diet is if you reduce the amount of carbs to almost you know, zero, you force your body to switch fuels. The body can run off carbs or glucose, or it can run off fats in the form of ketone bodies. That's what we call the fats that they run off. That's why the diet is called ketogenic or keto. So it's like switching, you know, from petrol to diesel. I mean, if you don't have any petrol, you can switch to diesel or a hybrid. You can switch from petrol to electric or whatever. Um, got to get up with that. But, um, you know, so if you deprive your body, if you like, or you don't you know, get, let your body have carbohydrates, the body will switch to burning fat, some of which will come from food, but some of which will come from your own fat. It will break down your body's fat and everyone has lots of fat. Even the skinniest person has lots and lots of body fat that they can use for energy. And that's why the ketogenic diet is so effective with weight loss because you're literally burning up your own fat. And that happens when you reduce carbohydrates. Now, the problem is that it takes a couple of weeks to sort of adjust to that. And sometimes you don't feel great for a couple of weeks. That's usually because you don't have enough sodium, enough salt. And interestingly, we, you know, we hear a lot about too much salt, but too little salt is just as much of a problem. And when you don't have any processed foods, you don't get any salt. So you actually need to add salt and quite a bit of salt to, uh, to your foods when you go onto this uh, ketogenic or, or low-carb uh, diet. That's a bit of a trap. But um, yeah, so carbohydrates are not an essential nutrient. Um, and uh, you know, people can do fine without them. Thanks for touching on the difference between low carb and ketogenic diet. It's one of my questions for later on. So just oh. as you, you gave a um, outline there, because um, yep. you know, a few people when they hear low carb, they often think it is a ketogenic diet. However, they are slot, they are different in terms of the carbohydrate uptake. So a ketogenic diet, as you said there, aiming yep. between you know, 30 grams of carbs or, or less a day, potentially up to 50, whereas a yep. low carb um, is around 130 or 100 and below. So yep. vast difference there between the both lifestyles well it really depends and people sort of say to me well how many carbs should i have you know and, and and there's no one answer for that there's no ideal amount of carbs for everyone it really depends where you are on the spectrum if you like of, of insulin resistance so if you're at one end of the scale you've got uh, type 2 diabetes you're pre-diabetic you've got fatty liver you're morbidly obese you're clearly insulin resistance and you don't cope very well with carbs so you need to be in that sort of, you know, 30 to 50 grams of carbs, at least for a while until you get yourself uh, get self-sorted. On the other hand, if you're skinny, healthy, young, metabolized carbohydrates, okay, 
you can have 100 to 120 grams of carbs a day without any, any problems. No one should be on the two to 300 grams a day as the average Australian. Uh, that's not healthy. But um, so the, the, there really is a spectrum. And, uh, and a lot of it is just trial and error. You'll find out, you know. So what I did was I, I went hardcore for three months, you know, probably 30 grams a day. Lost all the weight, reversed all my metabolic uh, disease, and then I just backed off a little bit. You know, a little bit by bit, I added a few little uh, little treats and uh, a little bit of dark chocolate here and there, or a bit of uh, you know some more veggies or a bit more dairy and so on. And I found out what's right for me. Now I've never actually measured my carbs, but I I suspect I'm probably a sixty or seventy grams of carbs a day man, and uh, that seems to be right for me. It keeps my weight steady, keeps my better, me metabolically healthy. But you know, some people need less. Some people can manage with that with more. So it's a matter of uh, of trial and error to, to determine what's right for each individual. Perfect. You state you have five golden rules, and you've touched on some of these already. Please, the five golden rules that you mentioned: are cut back on sugar, avoid vegetable oils, eat real food, avoid processed foods, which you've all mentioned so far tonight. And the fifth one was drink when you're thirsty. How did you come to yeah. these five golden rules? Uh, well, that's a good question, really. Um, I, I guess just from you know from everything I'd read and and, uh, and and talking to people and listening to people and 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 uh, both my own experience and those of my you know friends and colleagues and patients and so on, um, you get a feel for what's important and so on. So the fifth one is, is interesting because we you know back when I was a kid, you know we we didn't walk around with drink bottles the whole time. You know we'd we'd have a drink when we were thirsty. And um, and then you go out to play, and you know if you got thirsty, you'd come in and have a, I don't know, a glass of milk or a sip of cordial or something like that, which is probably what we had in those days. And then, you know, uh, what was it, 20, 30 years ago? And this was largely the makers of, of sports drinks and, and so on. They convinced everyone that you needed to drink the whole time. And uh, as a result, you know, lo and behold, they uh, they developed these drinks and marketed them and did uh, extremely well. And basically, they convinced everyone that thirst wasn't a good indicator. But I mean, for hundreds of years, thirst has been the. I mean, you drink when you're thirsty. You know, you don't just drink for the sake of drinking. I mean, wh why would you do that? You know, the the tribes in you know in Africa and 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 so on didn't, you know drink every half an hour because that was what they were told. I mean, they drank when they were thirsty or when they could find some water. And yet somehow, you know, the industry has convinced us that drinking the whole time is, is necessary. And uh, I don't believe it is. You know, I think you drink when you're thirsty. Thirst is a good indicator of, uh, of your hydration status. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you should drink simple drinks, water, milk, um, you know, kombucha, or if you want something a little bit more interesting. Um, but, you know, sugary drinks, um, just not necessary. And uh, so, you know, I, I think there's just been a lot of misinformation out there. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of it is driven by by profit and, and by, you know, the food and drinks industry uh, wanting to sell sell products. And, and, you know, that's their job. That's fine. You know, but we've got to stand up as a medical profession against these sort of a uh, piece of advice and tell people that the right advice instead we just tend to sort of go with the flow and uh and accept what they what they say so yeah so they're my five rules i mean you know they i think if you stick by them um you know you you're going to be a lot healthier what does a typical eating day look like for you okay well i'll tell you what i ate today um you know, we're in uh, COVID uh, lockdown here in Melbourne, so you can't do anything else anyway. So um, now I tend to uh, have a meal mid-morning. Um, so depending on what I'm doing and so on, but I might have a meal at about 11 o'clock or something like that. Um, well, that's not actually the first thing I have. When I wake up, I, have a, I make myself a, a cup of bone broth and uh, I get powdered bone broth and uh, lamb or beef or chicken, and uh, I add some boiling water and some salt, and that's what I have at you know seven in the morning, or whatever when I when I get up, um, and uh, then I'll go off and do some work or do whatever I'm doing, and then sort of mid morning I'll usually have uh, have my breakfast or break fast as we call it, um, 
And that will consist of uh, two different types. So I'll either have a, a cooked breakfast or a cold breakfast. Today I had a uh, cooked breakfast. I had uh, eggs, uh, some smoked salmon, some bacon and some avocado. Uh, and that's fairly typical. I might have some mushrooms or, uh, um, yeah, but that, that's, you know, that some sort of combination, maybe the sausage or whatever. Some combination of that is what I have for my cooked breakfast. If I'm having a cold breakfast, I'll have full fat Greek yogurt with uh, some nuts and seeds and some berries um, and a bit of cinnamon on top. And uh, yeah, so that's really my my two breakfasts. Um, I'll have that, as I said, around 11. Uh, that lasts me all day. I haven't eaten anything. I'll have a couple of cups, cups of coffee or a green tea during, uh, during the day when I'm working. And then in the evening meal, you know, it's just the old-fashioned, you know, meat or fish and a and, and couple of veg, you know. So uh, tonight uh, uh, we all, we've all got my uh, daughter and son-in-law and grandkids living with us at the moment while they're renovating their house. So we're uh, we're on the cooking roster. So tonight was uh, my wife made a nice butter chicken, we, which we had on cauliflower rice. So instead of having rice, we have cauliflower rice. Instead of having pasta, we have zucchini noodles. Um, so I make a zucchini noodle carbonara, which uh, everyone seems to like. Um, I'm on duty tomorrow night. I'm going to cook a uh, baked salmon and uh, on some, uh, again, some cauliflower rice and some spinach. Um, and then, you know, we'll have a, uh, you know, a coffee or something afterwards with a, maybe a square or two of dark chocolate. Like that. That's my my dessert, and so you know uh, we eat pretty well. I mean, I really you know uh, you know sort of traditionally diets are pretty miserable and and you know not very interesting and so on. But um, you know when you can eat meat and fish and and, and dairy and eggs and, and so on, I mean uh, you know you can't go too far wrong. Really, it's uh, it's very enjoyable. And you know eggs, you can do so much. Eggs are just a great food. And for years we were told, you know, eggs are bad, you know, full of cholesterol. And, you know, if you're going to have eggs, only have the egg whites, you know, all those egg white omelets. Oh, my God, you know, horrible stuff, you know, tasteless and, and useless. You know, all the good stuff's in the yolk, you know. So eggs are incredibly uh, healthy and uh, they're full of healthy protein, healthy fats. And you can do so many things with them. You can cook eggs in so many different ways. So, uh, you know, I, I have lots of eggs, you know. We... Uh, we get eggs delivered, you know, in a huge box of them every week. So we plough through the uh, the eggs. Uh, everyone in the family uh, loves that. So, so that's yeah, that's pretty much what uh, what I eat. And uh, I'm really, very, really hungry. If I got hungry during the day, I'd, I'd just go and either get a piece of cheese or grab some nuts. But uh, I can't remember the last day I, I had to do that. So, so yeah, it's it's pretty good. You know, yeah, all those things that you mentioned yeah, all sound delicious, and some of those. Yeah, the baked salmon and the cauliflower rice and the zoodles are all in your book as well at the back uh, for recipes. Yep. So those who want to pick up a copy, you'll have um, a few recipes that Peter set up as well, which is good to get you started. And I think I'll just like how you mentioned the easy swaps there, you know, for rice to cauliflower rice, um, for pasta, for the zoodles. So there are plenty of alternatives out there. And once you start looking up a few things, you just get on a roll and, and it's great to try yep. all these different foods. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm much more interested in cooking now than I ever used to be, you know, just because, uh, yeah, you know, you, the more you read about it, the more you learn about it, you want to try things and so on. And again, you know, we're not getting takeaway. I mean, we used to, you know, we, you know, we had four kids, you know, we were both working, you know, we, it was just easy to just get takeaway quite a lot, you know, and uh, I think back and uh, it's a wonder my kids survived their childhood, to be honest, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of still feel guilty about it, but uh, they all seem to have survived. But um, the grandchildren are getting much better nutrition, I can assure you of that. Perfect. So diets do not work and research from the National Eating Disorder Information Centre tell us that 95% of people who lose weight by dieting will regain, regain it in one to yep. five years. There are three ways to lose weight essentially, which is surgery, a really low calorie diet, which you mentioned both of them, and a low carb, healthy fat lifestyle. Can you share your thoughts on these options and the implications? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. Three different ways to uh, to lose weight. So let's first of all talk about surgery, bariatric surgery, which is uh, becoming popular. Uh, it's effective, absolutely. You know, you, uh, you have half your stomach ripped out or you uh, you bypass your, your stomach or clip your, uh, um, your alimentary tract. I mean, you will, uh, you will lose weight, uh, certainly. Um, it's pretty drastic. Uh, it has its own complications. Any surgery has complications. 
and uh, you can't eat much and uh, you're pretty miserable a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly is effective. There's no doubt about that. But it's got a lot of complications. Um, secondly, low calorie. As I mentioned before, you know, if you want to eat 800 calories a day, fine. You will lose weight. No problems at all. But I wouldn't want to live with you. You'll be hangry, hungry and angry. And uh, it's very hard to maintain that. And as I said before, you know, you, your metabolism slows, you then break the diet, and all of a sudden you're eating, back to eating the original food with a slow metabolism, and so you get you finish up fatter than you were. So it's just this yo-yo dieting that's not uh, – it's just not sustainable. I mean, it's fine. You know, if you can do it, great, but most people can't, and I certainly wouldn't want to. And you wouldn't enjoy your food anyway. That's – you know, we got to – I mean, you know, we're here to – food is one of the pleasures of life. You know, you want to enjoy it. And that's why that the third option, the, the low-carb, healthy fat, is, is, uh, is, I think, the best of those options because it's sustainable. It's the only one of the three that really doesn't have complications and, and is sustainable. So uh, that's why I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on that, you know, after eight years and, I, and I'll never change. And, uh, you know, why would you? I mean, I, you know, I'm healthy and I'm eating really good food and enjoying the food. I mean, <laughs> what more do you want? So uh, why would I go back to... Uh, to eating crap and, and feeling like rubbish. So, uh, and back to the, you know, the metabolic ill health that I was suffering from uh, eight years ago. So, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do it. Excellent. Fasting. So what are the health benefits of to fasting and should we be fasting? Yeah, interesting topic, fasting. So first of all, we've got to sort out what we mean by fasting. So there's, there's different types of fasting. Obviously, you know, you can just stop eating for periods of time. So people will go on 24-hour fast, 48-hour fast, you know, one-week fasts, you know. I mean, uh, so there's that option. And some people find that to be helpful to do that occasionally, to sort of, uh, you know, rejig everything. And and, uh, and certainly, I, you know, I have many colleagues who, uh, who do that every now and then, and they find it very helpful. What's more common is what we call intermittent fasting or uh, time-restricted eating. And that's really uh, compressing all your eating into a specific period of time, might be six, might be eight hours. So in other words, what I was talking about before about my eating, I would eat at 11 o'clock in, you know, in the morning and then I'd eat again maybe at six. And so I'm compressing all my eating into that sort of seven hours. And the other 17 hours, I'm fasting. and that certainly seems to be a popular uh, way to go at the moment. There is some evidence that it's uh, advantageous to your health. We don't have a lot of really good research on it, but it certainly doesn't seem to do any harm. And uh, it's a pretty easy way, easy thing to do, um, that uh, time-restricted eating. So I think a combination of time-restricted eating and uh, and when you do eat, you stick to uh, to, to low-carb and healthy fat is, is pretty powerful. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's quite a good idea. So just on that, you mentioned um, your, your personal seventeen-hour fast. Mm. Uh, the bone broth that you have in the morning would that count? Does that as... count? That, that's a good question. Um, I pretend it doesn't count because it's uh, it's liquid, but uh, yeah, because it doesn't have a big impact on your. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of. Uh, um, well, there's nutrients in there, but there's not a lot of uh, macronutrients and so on. So there's a lot of, you know, collagen and, and some glycerin and healthy fats and so on. So, look, you know, it, it, it may do, yeah. I mean, but uh, um, we'll quibble about, uh, you know, definitions of, of diet and so on. But uh, um, I find it quite uh, quite nice and a good way to start the day. Just a couple of last questions, Peter, just from the listeners. So one of yep. them is... Can you please talk about fat field athletes? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, we've had the, the carb generation, if you like, of, of athletes, you know, have just been fueled by carbs and, and endurance athletes in particular needing enormous amount of carbs, you know, sort of nine, ten hundred, ten thousand, you know, grams of carbs a, a day, you know, I mean, just constantly uh, fueling themselves with, with carbs. And um, over the last, I guess, you know, 10 years, I mean, uh, there's some, some even longer, there's been, a, you know, quite a number of, of, initially it was the ultra endurance athletes, you know, these crazy people that do, you know, 100 mile races and, and you know, uh, full length Ironman and things like that. 
Um, and who started experimenting with uh, with using fat as their primary fuel rather than carbohydrate. And that's got certain advantages. I mean, for a start, it's sort of healthier in a way. I mean, I have real concerns that we've had a whole generation of athletes with enormous amount of carbohydrate intake, many of it in the form of simple sugars like uh, um, sports drinks and, uh, and gels and so on. And that's got to have a long-term impact on their health. Then there's things like recovery, inflammation, uh, all um, much worse with, uh, with carbohydrates. So there's the health aspects. But obviously what you know, athletes are interested in is performance. And there's a lot of controversy about carbs versus fats for performance. If I had to summarize it, I'd say that in ultra-endurance events and endurance events, uh, running off fat or, uh, or working with a, a fat-dominant diet, using fat as your major fuel, can be advantageous. It certainly won't be any worse, but it can be advantageous. So um, I think there's certainly a good argument for endurance, ultra-endurance athletes to have, uh, have uh, a low-carb, high-fat uh, diet. When you get into higher intensity, it becomes a bit more complicated. Um, and I think there's a lot of individual variation. Now, I have AFL footballers, I have elite athletes who are very much low-carb, healthy fat, and are fine. I have others who are put onto a diet. There might be a cyclist who will tell me, yeah, look, I feel great, but I just don't have that extra gear when I have to sprint or climb or something like that. I just feel I need some carbs. So they, they may need some top-up uh, carbs. What's becoming quite popular now is what we call train low, compete high. And that's sort of a hybrid. So basically the theory is, is that you adjust your carbohydrate intake depending on the intensity of the exercise you're doing that day. So let's take a, an average AFL footballer or rugby league footballer, and they might have uh, one big training session in the midweek and then a the game. So on those days, they might have a few more carbs, but the rest of the time, they're basically low carb because they, uh, they can manage at the intensity of exercise. So again, it's a lot of individual variation, and it's a fascinating area uh, that more and more people are getting interested in. So uh, I think there's a lot of health advantages. As I said, I have real concerns about the... Uh, the very high doses of, of carbohydrates. But um, yeah, there are plenty of good fat-fueled uh, athletes around at the moment. Yeah, just a few things you mentioned there, just personally with my own running. Um, well, that, no. people don't, probably don't know that Daniel is uh, quite a, uh, well, a very good marathon runner. I'd have to, have to qualify, describe you as that. Thanks, Peter. Um, so just as you mentioned there, the train low, compete high. Just for those listening, Louise Burke has done a fair bit of research in that area. And she's got a few good research papers out um, based on that. And I personally prefer the hybrid system. I know on my speed session days, I definitely do top up with a bit of extra carbs just to hit that, um, you know, when you're training at like 90% above your maximum heart rate sessions or your RPEs with nine and tens. Um, and those sessions that are really quite intense. But other than that, you know, low carb, I've had no issues in. Even my Sunday long runs, I go out sometimes without any food before it at all, um, and able to run for the two hours plus um, at that level. So definitely um, a lot of area, a lot of room for, for improvement in this area as well in terms of research. It's been a fascinating experiment that just got on in the UK. So James Cracknell, who's an Olympic gold medalist rower, and a group of other people have just run 100 miles in five days and taken in no nutrition, zero nutrition. And been absolutely fine. They're all fat adapted, um, and uh, yeah, very interesting. You can read about that on the on the net. Fascinating experiment. Might have to look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, one last question from a listener is: Is there any way to test insulin at home yet, or being developed? No, there isn't as yet. Um, it's quite strange in that uh, when you go to your doctor and you've got you know, concerns about your health, they'll always do your blood glucose. They'll always do this thing called HbA1c, which is your sort of average blood glucose over the last uh, two or three months. But no one understands to measure insulin. So you always have to ask your doctor, can you do my serum, my fasting serum insulin? They look at you a bit strange and say, well, what does that mean? What, they, they actually honestly have no idea. And uh, it's a really good uh, indicator because it's an indicator that 
the, the trouble is by the time your glucose goes up, you're in real trouble. You know, you've got diabetes already. Whereas if you discover early on that your insulin, so in my case, you know, my blood glucose was fine. So, you know, ostensibly, yeah, you know, I'm fine. But the reality was my insulin was very high. And that's an indicator that I'm in, in trouble. I'm becoming insulin resistant and I'm going to be, develop type 2 diabetes. So one of the, the good things that I did was I, I measured my serum insulin and, and uh, found out it was quite high. And that came down when I went on my, my diet. So um, unfortunately, with, with uh, glucose, you can do a little um, blood prick and, and measure it on a, on a stick. Uh, or you can have a continuous glucose monitor, which you can wear on, on your arm. I know there are some people, because they've spoken to me about it, that are trying to develop a, a portable insulin reader, uh, something that you can just do on a, uh, on a blood, uh, uh, one little drop of blood. Uh, it's probably not far away, um, but uh, it's not here yet. But the continuous glucose monitors are really interesting. That's, uh, that's something that you just put on your, your arm. It's quite uh, painless. You just uh, pop it on there. Uh, you can do that for two weeks. And it'll give you a constant readout of your blood sugar um, on your phone. So you just put your phone up there. It'll tell you what your blood sugar is. And it's a fantastic learning experience because you see what effects certain foods have on your blood sugar. And I would, I would suggest anyone who's diabetic uh, or type 2 diabetic or pre-diabetic, it's a great thing to get. It costs 90 bucks for two weeks, so it's a fair bit of money. But, and you don't need to have it all the time. It only lasts two weeks. But to do a two-week experiment, it's really powerful because you'll see, okay, let's have my uh, you know, cornflakes and uh, toast for breakfast. And you'll see the effect it has on your uh, – and so, you know, you can have people like me, you know, telling you, you know, with all these lectures and so on, what's going to happen. But if it actually you can read it yourself, it's very powerful. So these continuous glucose monitors are pretty exciting. I think it's probably not far off in the next five years you'll be able to measure all these things on your Apple Watch and uh, that'll make a big difference. Perfect. So, Peter, just before we wrap up, if you could only provide one piece of advice for us to live healthier lives, what will that one piece of advice be? Jeff, just eat real food. If you stick to eating real food, you know, and just avoid processed food, if you do nothing else, you'll be a lot better off. Jeff, J-E-R-F. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Yeah, not Jeff, Jeff. Excellent. Nice and simple to remember. Well, Peter, yep. thank you so much for all your information tonight and for the book, A Fat Lot of Good. Really encourage everyone to get a copy of it and read it. And as you mentioned at the start as well, you're not making any money off the book and all the proceeds go to the Sugar by Half uh, Foundation and Charity and Campaign, which is, you know, aiming to educate many people in the community and kids in school and to reduce you know, the sugar intake by half of all Australians. So thanks for your work on that as well. And you're doing a fantastic job and looking forward to catching up another time. Thank you very much, Peter. No, thank you. And thanks everyone for, uh, for listening and all your comments and I'll try and uh, answer uh, as many as I can. I should just mention that uh, in November, we're launching a new project, a new program called Defeat Diabetes, which will be an app based uh, program that uh, I'm spending a lot of time on at the moment developing and it's going to be very exciting and uh, it'll be a very practical way for you to manage your uh, your diabetes. So uh, keep an eye out for that. We're launching it on uh, on November the 14th, which is World Diabetes Day and uh, it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to have a real impact. So that's something to look forward to. So pencil in your calendar, November 14, World Diabetes Day for Defeat Diabetes from Peter Bruckner and Sugar Bahar. That's great. Great work, Peter. Looking forward to seeing that. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for everything. Thanks, everyone.